Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 49, I interview Chris LeBon, the founder and managing director of United Carriers. We discuss how growing up in a family working in freight forwarding made it a natural career path for him from day one. Why his passion for clothing combined with his freight network enabled him to launch his own clothing brand into 14 retail stores at a young age. The hard-won lessons from being on the other side of the transaction, which allowed him to better empathise with his freight clients. How a false start with a business partnership gone wrong did not dampen his enthusiasm as he went on to start United Carriers and grow from zero to nearly five million in annual revenue in just a few short years. How he adds value to all of his clients and focuses so much on maintaining his staff culture as he grows. If you're interested in value-added services and advice with a strong international network for all of your freight needs, check out unitedcarriers.com.au. That's U-N-I-T-E-D. C-A-R-R-I-E-R-S dot com dot A-U. Okay, so I'm here with Chris LeBon, the founder and managing director of United Carriers. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me, Derek. That's all right. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started United Carriers? What did you study? What type of companies were you working in or doing what jobs? Yeah. Um, look, I'll, I'll start pretty early on. Um, always sort of wanted to get into business. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was um, younger, I remember like, you know, 16, 17, having kids come over and, you know, teaching them basketball and, um, you know, they'd be over for about an hour and we'd just be playing hoops and, and you know, coaching and training and then um, after that, you know, when I got to 18, it was time to get a full-time job. Um, I had my brother in freight forwarding, I had my, uh, my godfather, who's also my cousin in freight forwarding. So look, naturally I was like, I'm going to, you know, get a couple of resumes out and, and, you know, see if I get someone that comes back to me. Um, probably, you know, within a couple of weeks, got a, got an offer from a large freight forwarding company called Main Freight. Um, and started my way, you know, through the ranks, um, you know, originally just on the road and, and doing like dock billing and, and, and you know, paying for docks um, around the area. And then pretty quickly got, got my, um, my chance to go work inside the office. Um, and that's where predominantly, I, you know, I got to uh, really learn um, what the industry was about. Um, stayed there for a good maybe about six years um, until I, you know, going to the sales component of international freight forwarding. Um, and that's where I really think the opportunities picked up for me. Um, I moved from uh, main freight for, you know, about four years of doing sales and then into Expedise, which is a you know, large Fortune 500 company um, out of the US. And um, from there, you know, uh, really just being involved in the industry, uh, but at the same time doing, doing a little bit of side businesses as well, you know, like with having the freight forwarding experience, um, it's sort of allowed me to try and do a few different things in regards to um, designing and, and distribution of, um, of, of clothing, actually. Um, so I was able to use that experience of freight forwarding, but also uh, get into a bit of a creative side. Was that sort of like empty containers or return trips or sort of slack in the system and you were able to sort of use that for your clothing or was it just knowledge of uh, supply no, chains and yeah, distribution? I, I think it was just the, 
the opportunity to use the freight forwarding network that I was involved in. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I was interested in making a bit of clothing. Um, predominantly, it was actually for myself. You know, that's a whole other story. But, you know, getting into the manufacturing of clothing from overseas and then um, using um, the freight forwarding company I was working for to bring it in. Um, but it was just more like an opportunity and I'd always sort of go after, you know, the things that I wanted to do while I was still working full-time. Um, but then, yeah, ultimately, you know, went to another company called uh, Expeditors, uh, which is uh, yeah, that US-based company I was talking about and um, stayed there for probably about three and a half years. Went into a directorship opportunity, again, in freight forwarding. Um, and, you know, that didn't last for too long. In fact, you know, that, that was probably ultimately what led me into starting up United Carriers. So if we go back to you as a sort of 13 to 15-year-old, your family members are in freight forwarding, but, but what does the, what did you as a teenager think that even meant? We, did, had you seen them work? Had you heard stories? Were they positive on the industry, negative on the industry? Is uh, it sort of you grew up in something or any different or were you excited to, to go into that industry as a young person who hadn't really worked in it yet? Yeah, no, nah, look, for me, you know, I've got, I got three brothers and um, I wanted to be in the NBA. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, you know, growing up, you know, that many years ago, um, it wasn't really something that was, you know, pushed towards, you know, like, you know, do, do sport and go, go do all that. And so it was really just about, all right, I've, I've finished school and, I, you know, I want to develop and, and, you know, have a bit of a career that I want to focus on. Um, and so naturally sort of seeing what was around um, that was working, um, you know, I had the opportunity to, to sort of look at an industry and say, okay, let, let's try get in here. Yeah, you can see they're making money, it works, it kind of, it's, it's tactile, it makes sense, okay, they move stuff in and out of the country. Um, and you mentioned sort of sales was when it really sort of clicked. Did someone sort of tap you on the shoulder and say, you should give this a go? Or did you just naturally say, how can I earn more? And someone said, well, you've got to bring in, you know, extra customers. And if you do that, yeah. you know, um, we'll, we'll put you there. Yeah, look, it definitely, definitely wasn't about earning more, but it was about um, having a little bit of flexibility um, to, to, you know, still be in the industry, um, you know, assist with um, the knowledge I was getting, uh, but ultimately just being able to deal with people um, and, and being able to, you know, interject myself into different industries, um, you know, and different types of businesses and really just absorb and, and learn from, from other people, you know. Yeah, and so you work in, you know, big Fortune 500 freight companies, other small local freight companies. You've got this clothing, other business ideas on the side. Did they not take off as much as you expected? Was it just, you know, the passion was back to sort of freight? How did those little business experiments go? Look, you know, I remember I was, I was probably 18 when I first um, had my first shipment and, you know, started distributing it and I was, I was you know, selling to retail stores to get them into stores. Um, and look, we, we got them in a few. That was, you know, back in the day, it was globalised. You know, we used to be in, um, you know, probably around 14 stores around Australia, which uh, for me, that was that was cool as shit. Like, you know, just seeing your product in a, in a store. Um, but ultimately, you know, this is where, you know, the, the owls come, which is like, yeah, it's losses, but it's the learnings and the lessons I got from it, which um, ultimately was about, um, you know, like, something as simple as cash flow, like giving all this product to all these different stores, but not really managing the, the money that was coming back in. And this is when I was quite young. I was just happy that I was selling product. Um, so there was definitely uh, lessons within all the smaller businesses that I'd done, um, which ultimately when I was in that position to sort of say, okay, I have to do something. I have to start something now. Um, after the, the opportunity that went a bit sour um, that I was involved in, then all of a sudden, you know, everything that I'd learned in the past uh, made a lot more sense to quickly start up. In fact, it took about two months before I was, you know, on the ground running. 
with the new business. And, and so when you're in the clothing space, so what's one of the issues you're selling on consignment? So the retailer says, yeah, 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 we'll put it in the store, but if it doesn't sell, we send it back to you and you've sort of fronted the cost? Yeah, look, that's that's one way to get in. Um, but I think I, I, we had a pretty good product. You know, I, I'd, um, it was called, you know, Brothers Apparels with my brothers, right? Um, we had a good product. So, um, you know, I, I remember thinking uh, for a couple stores to get the confidence up and get the brand out there, I was happy to do consignment. I just brought in shitload of, product that's sitting in the you know in the in the garage or the warehouse instead and um so you know the leverage was the product i had um so i was willing to sort of um give that out but quite quickly um you know we we started seeing like there was a bit of traction with it people liked the idea and the concept and um you know then it sort of put us in, on the track to get into some retailers um and you know actually send out invoices and get some money and you know um but yeah that was just Something that we 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 got into and we had fun with it, um, but ultimately led to you know things that happened um, later on. And how did that change your perspective going from the freight forwarding side to the the product side, right? Because you're essentially on the client side versus service provider side. Did that give you a different level of empathy for your clients or understanding of the again, like you said, cash flow pressures? Um, that was huge. Marketing, yeah. For me, um, being able to sit on both sides and and sort of see uh, what I was doing from a service perspective to help out these businesses versus what I was trying to do as a business with a product to try to get it out to customers and, you know, the importance of just having the product here to be able to, you know, sell the product. Um, you know, yeah, like you mentioned, you know, empathy. I got to understand, you know, what people were going through and but also how could I further help? Um, and it sort of goes back to, you know, when I first started um, in the industry, whilst I wanted to get into sales, I ended up doing the customs brokers course, um, which is, you know, it's a very difficult course. I understand that, you know, one of my brother is actually a customs broker and, you know, it's a difficult uh, role um, back then and even today um, just to also be a licensed broker. Um, but having done that, uh, that course, um, which is about three and a half years, enabled me to come to the market with a different perspective um, from a bit of a technical side versus um, just the, the service part of, of being able to move people's cargo. And, I mean, did you find it was an easy thing to sell and sign up customers or is it commoditized and people are very price sensitive or, again, they do value the right customers, do value the service and relationship or, like you said, the, the technical um, custom broker knowledge? What was it like in terms of, you know, growing your client base you know, when you were still in a sales role before you started the business? Yeah, yeah. Uh, early on, it was def definitely hard because, um, you know, the particular service is actually built on trust. You're dealing with people's supply chains. Um, so... You know, it wasn't a matter of just being able to easily speak to people and, and you know, ha have a laugh with them and be able to, you know, move business from them. It wasn't about that. It was about, um, you know, this long-term um, uh, providing value and adding credibility um, and then being able to um, be entrusted to handle business. Um, so, yeah, definitely, you know, having that sort of, um, having that sort of approach as I got older and older, um, it definitely got easier. But it was because that that network was already growing. It was already uh, moving forward. Um, so you know, in the position now, I sort of feel as though you know I'm I'm going out on the road and I'm I'm purely there to add value. I'm purely there to try and assist them, um, whether or not they're using my particular service. Um, but if they're in general, you know, looking for supply chain um, improvements and efficiencies, I'm going to be there to assist. You know, uh, with what they're doing. Yeah, and so, so you work in these big corporations. Obviously, the career is going well. You've seen different sides of the industry. You've got an interest in 
you know, starting your own business, you've run little side businesses. Um, talk to me about the moment you decided to start United Carriers. Was there a, a turning point? Was it a natural evolution? And then once you actually started, what was that first 12 months like? Yeah. Um, I'm going to be quite diplomatic with the way I, I put this, but, um, you know, I, I got into an opportunity with someone that I'd known for quite a while and, um, you know, it was, it was trust-based, but it was, you know, there's also documents, but, um, you know, it didn't, it didn't turn out the way um, that, you know, we, we had envisioned and um, ultimately, you know, you know, th- there's a burn there, right? Um, but that particular burn ultimately set up everything. Um, you know, I- I'd already been in the industry for this long. Um, you know, there was definitely learnings in that, you know, 18 months. Um, but then being able to move on from there it sort of just gave me that sort of motivation. It was a matter of, um, you know, when you've been knocked down, it was really about, uh, okay, this hurt. We're going to move forward. We've got no choice. Um, so it definitely fueled a bit of a fire um, to, to get this happening, and it had to happen quick because uh, I, didn't, I didn't have no backing. Um, so it was really about the um, relationships that I'd forged over time that um, were able to support me, you know, on, on you know, starting up. Um, and there's some that you, there's some that you expect to come along and there's, uh, and there's others that just come along and, and ultimately, you know, that's what helps you continue to grow and, 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 you know, have that business keep moving forward. So you mentioned, you know, adding value, building relationships, being in the industry for a while, but getting those first few customers, you're in a big corporate, people are risk averse. Like you said, you're dealing with their, their precious supply chain. It's a key business, um, infrastructure. What was that process like of getting those first half a dozen clients to trust you with, like you said, you've had a false start with a business partner, but keeping getting that trust so that they, you know, ship product with you or trust you to to broker an import export versus using a reliable, safe, you know, giant multinational. Yeah, what for was that sure. like? For sure. Um, ultimately, um, solutions will will ultimately impact the business that you're you're you're, you're supporting and serving. Um, so. You know, there were some that just had knew that for years I'd continued to uh, service their supply chain um, and, and had always been there to, to assist um, because when everything's going sweet, it's going sweet. Um, as soon as there's some disruption, which obviously in the last few years has been monumental to, to businesses and, and their supply chain, then all of a sudden the solutions become more important. Um, so I think some of them, um, you know, there was there was clients that I dealt with for years, and that you know they just supported me, they just backed me, they just knew that, hey, look, we think you can do this, and, and um, we we know that you know our business, and they were willing to give it a go. Um, but there was definitely a strategic element as to which customers I could handle and which ones I couldn't, um, knowing my weaknesses and strengths when I first started. Um, but um, yeah, there was definitely just some people that you know said, Chris, we're gonna, we're gonna we're gonna support you on this. So what were those type of customers who were that sort of perfect fit? What was an example of the type of work you were doing for them that maybe a big company was sort of underservicing them on? Yeah. Look, first things first, um, the people I got with me. So, uh, you know, even when I, when I look at the business now, we've got an average of 17 years of experience um, among every individual, um, you know, in, in the position at the company. So what that sort of did was I was reassuring people that, hey, I'm not just going to you know, service that business, but I'm going to make sure that we got the right people um, servicing the, this business with me. So, you know, there, there were, um, especially my, my first staff member, you know, Kelly, she jumped on first day and, you know, she's um, still with me to this day. And, you know, she she cared, 
So every single opportunity we got, um, they knew that we we're going to care about that business. Um, you know, not saying that other companies don't, um, but it was just an element of um, responsibility and accountability that we took on quite quickly. Um, and I think those initial customers knew that we we're going to do that. Um, but there was also, um, you know, particular focuses I had um, with with having um, such low capital. I sort of knew that we, we couldn't just go and handle all these, you know, full containers coming from around the world because it, it's not only is it a high cost, but it's a long transit. Um, so you had to sort of focus on particular businesses that were getting uplifted and coming straight away. So, you know, sort of air freight business. Um, so and that sort of helped with the strategy as to who I could actually help and who I was approaching to say, hey, I know I can, I can support your business, you know. Okay, so you've got a few customers who trust you because you've served them well and, and you've got a personal connection. Obviously, you've got a network of, of people. You've got staff members that are loyal to you. What were some of those challenges? You already had the business partner challenge before that, but what, once you're on your own, you're, you're getting some good momentum. What were some of those hard parts in the first 12 months out on your own? Yeah, it was, um, I guess, what, yeah, apart from the transactional cash flow component and things like that, it was, it was also um, you know, establishing the network globally because you're, di- you're a new brand. They may know you, but it's a new business at the end of the day. So you, you're, you're, you're trying to um, you know, ensure that all your partners around the world are also supporting you with this new business. Um, so, And one of the challenges there was ensuring that every single person got paid no matter what. On the due date, make sure that's paid. Um, and a lot of it initially was actually all COD, you know, just to make sure that, hey, can you actually pay these bills? Um, and so you know, after about two to three months of doing that, picking the right customers. And, inside, and, and, you know, another side thing is, you know, shout out to a couple of my mates, you know, Martin Stan, who, who also supported me when I was going through some of, you know, the first initial months, we were quite quickly bringing on business. So in order to ensure I paid everyone on time, um, all service providers involved, there were some areas at the end of the month where, you know, it's like, hey, I need a bit of a top up. You know, it wasn't that we weren't, you know, um, you know, making revenue or, or not making profit. It was more about there's, there's bills due and I wanted to ensure that every single, you know, supplier got paid. Um, so, you know, there was a lot more and, and part of the reason even starting the business and calling it United Carriers was very early on people came to come and help. So I knew this business wasn't being built just by myself. Um, there were people there to support me, you know, real quick. And was that based on just your personal reputation, relationships? Was it like some of those values, like you said, paying people on time? Was it other things from the industry, bad habits? You're like, I'm going to do the opposite of what everyone else in the industry does. Um, what, what sort of helped generate that support? Yeah, I think, I think first of all, um, you know, they knew I was serious. Um, but also, you know, they're mates. So they're friends. They're people that I've known for a little while and, um, and they, were, they were able to to assist, they could see that you know something was happening. I was building something, um, and, and you know I was I was open with the challenges um, when we're having chats as, as mates do, um, and you know they they some of them you know wanted to assist, which is um, you know I'll never forget that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so your company's obviously it started strongly. You've got these people on board. You've grown 132 percent last financial year, doing nearly four and a half million in annual revenue, becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. So as you're then rapidly growing, you know, all this success is sort of coming through. What were some of those, the good and bad of those sort of uh, growing pains and that sudden sort of growth as you scale up and, and get that momentum behind you? Yeah. Um, it was it was all about making sure that, um, you know, you know, I, I know a lot of people use the word culture, but um, the right people were part of this, biz, uh, this business. 
um, and were on board with the vision, um, you know, especially two years, you know. I, I found it quite important that um, I know a lot of people were working remotely, but as we were growing, it was actually so important to ensure that people could, could collaborate um, but also collaborate on things that were actively happening at the time. Um, and, and, you know, so that was probably one of the, the biggest challenges of, of being able to ensure that we've got the right people. Um, they are, you know, they're on track with the values that we've got as a company. Um, and, you know, that, that would be probably one of the biggest biggest challenges as we're, we're growing. Um, and it continues to be, you know, as I want to ensure that we've got, you know, people that are there for the right reasons and, and you know, helping the, the team but also customers. And so how do you filter for that? Is it, again, a customer focus? Is it, you know, people you, you know in some way so they've got a track record? Yeah. Like you mentioned, that the level of deep experience, you're not hiring, you know, teenagers and graduates, you're hiring deep um, specialists. How do you sort of filter for that culture fit? What are some of those values you sort of interview and hire against? Yeah, I think there's, um, you can only be so proactive. Um, and I think part of the process um, was quite lengthy. Um, so, you know, having, having um, three discussions with them on separate occasions, but then being very clear with um, what I could offer, but also uh, what do you need? Um, so if we could find synergies on um, together what we're, what we're actually trying to do, then we could find that it was a bit of a, a fit, first of all. Um, and then, you know, like you mentioned as well, it definitely had to do with uh, knowledge and experience uh, within the industry but also within the business, what did we actually need? So how could each individual that comes through into this business ensure that they're flourishing and actually making an impact on um, what they're responsible for? And were there some missteps? You're growing quickly, you need extra sort of hands and bodies and you sort of let people in, like you said, then the culture started to slip and you had to sort of correct for that? Yeah, look, it was, um, you got to make decisions quick. Um, so you know, we, we definitely had, uh, it was at a real, you know, maybe three to six month phase where we definitely needed the support. Um, and we're always trying to be sort of one step ahead. It wasn't like we had all this business and we, you know, now we're going to hire and everything. We just were prepared for the growth. Um, we felt like we were doing the right things. Uh, we had the right businesses supporting us. Um, so we wanted to make sure that no one was um, uh, was always, uh, you know, underwater with, with you know, the amount of responsibility that they have to effectively serve customers um, in, in a reactive sort of way. Um, so, so during that time, yeah, you know, definitely. Um, and I feel like every time we sort of veered a little bit off our initial strategy of ensuring that we're providing value with, you know, expertise and, and, and knowledge, um, you would see, you would see the potential uh, result of that. Um, so we, we had to make sure that we were um, sticking true to the, to the strategy that we wanted to, um, to, to go along with. So some things like that are a timeless part of the culture, right, and never sort of change that client focus. Were there people who are great as like a first one, two, three sort of hire, but once you were 10, 20, 30 staff weren't as good a fit for the culture and did the culture sort of evolve past them or people able to you know, grow with it as the business grew quickly and changed, yeah. I imagine, in some ways? Yeah, look, at this stage, um, you know, we're still on the path of, um, you know, uh, ensuring that everyone's there for the right reason. Um, and, and at this stage, we've got that still, you know, I feel like we've got that in control. You know, we, we, we've got the right people together, the right group. I understand it's going to be a, a bigger challenge as we continue to move forward. But um, if, we had, uh, if we had such a focus um, from the start, 
we've sort of already let it evolve within uh, most people within the business, which will you know help continue to um, have that sort of culture and, and that environment um, thrive, which is really just about like you know constantly um, developing and ensuring people have the the freedom to be able to try things and, and you know make mistakes. Like it, it's fine, but you know we, we need to understand you know, from that mistake, um, you know, uh, how can we, you know, continuously improve or just identifying why it didn't work and what didn't work. And, and was there an idea you had? Cause you know, you're running your own business. There are things you probably didn't like at companies you worked at and you thought I'll, I'll change this and it didn't quite work the way you hoped or expected. Um, yeah, I, I think it was, I, I really tried just ensuring that, you know, the people that come into the business, they can, they can be themselves no matter what. And if we could if we could focus on people being themselves, I think we would be able to learn and develop um, together and and not be you know so professional. Uh, even though it's a professional service, and I understand that, but I felt like it was more important for people to be authentic um, and for people to be comfortable with um, with you know what they're doing and who they are. Um, and with having that sort of approach. Um, I felt like we, we, could, we could create something a little bit different um, because the industry is definitely extremely professional and I understand that. But, but you know, I think the, the professionalism comes from the knowledge and the approach of the val- that value that you can add um, as opposed to, um, you know, just, just the way that you rock up to work and, and the way that you, you know, um, dealing with customers on a daily basis. Yeah, and so you've grown up in this sort of freight world and, and supply chains. You've been in it for a long time. Um, but in the last 24 months, you know, every person's talking about supply chains, freight, shipping, you know, with all, all the different things that have changed in the last two years, it's sort of, um, you know, it's barbecue talk when it probably never used to be for people outside the industry. Um, you know, what have these changes um, in supply chains, COVID, international sort of shipping, freight, all these other ripple effects, what have they meant to you being on the ground doing it every day? And, and what are some of the, the future sort of trends you see in um, the space you're in, in logistics and supply chain? Yeah. It's, it's definitely a challenge, right, um, irrespective of how much knowledge you got or how much experience you got because um, it's constantly changing. So having that understanding allows you to be more open with the potential solutions that you can use because they're actually changing constantly. Um, so, um, you know, the challenges are, are seen not only from a freight forwarders perspective, but obviously we're seeing it in every single single business um, and the way um, you know that they're trying to approach it. I think the change now is um, we have to be aware of the impact the supply chain actually has on the business. Um, I think in the past we took we took it for granted a little bit. Um, you sort of just expected um, things to to move and to be there, but there are definitely um, you know as we've we've witnessed um, these disruptions uh, compound especially when you're in a supply chain because there's so many different events. Um, so I think in future we're going to have um, a little bit more visibility and understanding of each of those touch points in the supply chain. Um, and with having that knowledge, we can sort of isolate different areas that actually need fixing or, or looking into or, you know, better planning. Um, so that there's, a, there's a lot of attention onto the supply chain, um, which it always should have. You know, it really, really should have. There's all, there's, it's all good doing other areas of the business, but we really got to look at the continuity of actually, um, you know, uh, you know, the products and, and services that are moving within that chain. Yeah, and like a lot of things in life, when it works, no one questions it. But as soon as there's something goes wrong, everyone becomes very uh, aware of it. Has it changed? I mean, how you 
do certain aspects of your business, the conversations you have with clients, the expectations, good or bad, that clients and end consumers sort of have? Yeah. Um, yeah, part of, the, part of the job at the start was just managing expectations. Um, you know, people were so used to um, how something worked. So um, initially at the start, it's, it's sort of just identifying, um, you know, each person's different requirements and expectations and then being able to manage that in line with what is currently happening um, and really rather than trying to forecast too much in front, it was more about just assessing these quick trends like this is what's actually happening. Um, so it, it's something that we, um, you know, ha has changed a little bit where we're very much more looking at what are you actually trying to achieve first um, and how can we mitigate the risks um, to ensure that we can get close to that expectation um, because it was just so much happening so quickly. And I mean, has that overall you think sort of helped you because you're a bit smaller, you're more nimble, you're closer to your customers, you can sort of give that sort of guidance and support or change how you do things versus a giant uh, multinational with maybe a bit more rigid and, and you know, complexity? Yeah, yeah, uh, um, yeah it definitely has. Um, and, and it comes uh, from the way of, uh, so, you know, once something's not really working, you've got a little bit more eyes on it and you're trying to identify, um, you know, the solution for that particular problem. So then you're more open now to speaking and, um, you know, being able to um, hear other ways of, of dealing with the situation. So, um, you know, from my, from my position, I've sort of, because I've been in the industry for quite a while, it's it's allowed me to come back into these doors with some of these people and sort of say, okay, what's the situation uh, from my perspective? Um, this is what we could potentially do. Um, and you know, the the, the larger forwarders, um, they have they still have uh, their part in the game as well with dealing with multi global corporations. Um, so it, it's it's you know you still got to be um, you know, a little bit mindful of who you're looking to help and support to ensure that you actually can uh, ensure that that business works for them not only just locally but actually you know globally as well with their business. Yeah, and so, so like you're saying, if everything's going well, there's a bit of apathy. People don't care. They don't want to change suppliers just for the sake of changing. But people you might have spoken to years ago now suddenly reevaluating um, what they were doing. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, do you find your sort of niche is more in international businesses, but a bit sort of smaller, medium size? So they're doing a lot of complex global sort of shipping, but they're not pushing the volumes of a giant, like you said, sort of Fortune 500 type. Yeah, look, it, it's ultimately about um, where the decision makers sit. Um, because to have a an impact on the global supply chain, you've got to be able to deal with someone that has a influence, but ultimately also the decision uh, to go ahead with that type of um, uh, supply chain with who's involved and how it moves. Um, so uh, that's starting to change as well in businesses that I've, I'm seeing. You know, sometimes uh, there's there's global deciders that are sitting in a, the head office in another country, and they're ultimately making the decisions. Um, or it could be, you know, regionally decision uh, making, even though it's a, a global business. So um, for me, it, it's definitely uh, not so much about the business uh, and the companies I do business with, but the people that I do business with. Um, so you know, if someone's approaching me, it doesn't really matter, you know, how big or small their business is. Um, cause that's all in their own interpretation, whether or not they're big or small, you know? <laughs> so it, it's more about the people that I'm dealing with, um, and, and what problem that we're trying to solve. Um, and it's not always, you know, it doesn't always have to be, uh, you know, me handling it right now. It, it could be about, this is your current arrangement. This is how you could fix it. Um, and sometimes that value also sets 
up other opportunities in future. Yeah, and, and so you mentioned the difference between some that have a centralised decision-making versus decentralised. Do you see a trend to where countries or, or big multinationals are decentralising some of their decision-making because the conditions on the ground, country by country, is so different and, you know, ever-changing with different regulations and, and um, you know, how people are responding to what's going on? Yeah. Look, I'm not, I'm not actually seeing a trend yet. I know it's been spoken about. I know it's getting talked about, and I'm sure it's being um, it's it's a bit of a topic um, for for these type of businesses. Um, you know, whether it's uh, sort of medium to large, because even medium businesses can offshore their decisions when it comes to the supply chain. Um, so it, it's it's definitely being talked about, but when it comes to assessing a trend, we're not really seeing that come through yet because it, it's a decision that. Uh, has a lot of work behind it to to you know for a pragmatic decision to go forward with with changing that supply chain setup. Yeah, and in a big company, even if maybe they're consulting their, their regional counterparts, they're not going to change the whole management yeah. reporting lines overnight. Yeah, yeah. So if we zoom out a bit away from sort of freight and logistics, and we talk about entrepreneurship in Australia, obviously dealing with businesses, um, people buying and selling all over the world. So you've sort of got your finger on the pulse. What do you see entrepreneurs in Australia doing really well and where do you see them sort of, you know, maybe slightly not lagging behind but, you know, leaving opportunity on the table compared to what you're seeing in some other markets? Um, yeah, I, I think I read somewhere it was uh, one, uh, one third of our GDP is from small businesses. Um, so it shows that we're starting businesses. Um, it shows that we're running businesses. Um, I think where we may be falling behind a little bit is having a bit of a global vision. Um, so not being able to just start that business, but actually say, hey, how do we actually um, cross barriers and how do we, how do we grow globally, um, which, which I believe it's definitely possible. You know, when you look at, um, you know, uh, the types of uh, trade that we're currently doing with all different types of countries, it, it's, it's open for business, definitely. So, so do you speak to business owners and you handle their domestic sort of shipping and freight and you're saying, hey, you guys could expand internationally, but are people nervous? Are they lacking capital? Are they unfamiliar with regulations or other sort of market conditions abroad and they're less comfortable with that? Or yeah. what do you sort of see that prevents people from going global more easily? Um, well, I, I really only get involved when they made the decision. So in regards to the decision-making process, that's really up to, you know, that each individual to see whether or not they've got the resources or got the time to sort of invest in these other um, areas to go and do business with. Um, obviously, we've got free trade agreements with different countries in the world and um, we just, you know, opened up one with India. So there's, there's definitely, uh, you know, a global consumer market and it's just a matter of um, if that particular business uh, owner wants to go, um, you know, into that, uh, into that space. And, you know, m most people want to make sure that they're comfortable locally before they really start, ex uh, you know, expanding into different uh, countries. So, um, you know, once they feel confident with that, then, you know, I'm sure that, uh, you know, more companies here in Australia will, will look to do that. And so do you get people, like you said, once they've made that decision, they're handling international import, export, shipping, and that's why they're sort of talking to you. Do you sort of guide them on, you know, which markets or the different, obviously, issues, bring stuff in and out across different markets? Are, are yeah. some things easier than people expect, other things harder than people expect? Yeah, I, I think uh, where, where I help them out with the most is um, is the, the the transaction and the, um, the setting up of... Uh, you know, documents to ensure that cargo flows, um, you know, 
from from you know door to door and i ensure that um you know from a documentation point of view that they have got everything correct so we're not you know having these disruptions with customs and, and you know different um legislation around the world so that that would be my main focus uh, you know i wouldn't get involved too much about who you should be selling to i can look at emerging markets for people but these are just based on discussions that we're having and, and doing a little bit of research together um but once they've made that decision then I, I'm there to completely support, you know, I've helped businesses break into, um, you know, overseas markets. So, but it's about them wanting to sell to someone in that overseas market. I'll make it happen. You decide, you know. And I mean, so do you have certain markets you can support, others you can't support? Or again, is that just working with the clients, finding out what's required and using you and your team's expertise to connect them to whatever markets, if it's, you know, legally and practically possible, you'll sort of make it happen? Or are there markets you deal with more than sort of other markets? So it is absolutely open. So, you know, we've got agents all around the world. So it's identifying um, what needs to be sent, uh, what documents need to be sent, what requirements are um, required by the destination um, country. But it also, uh, you know, I don't want to get too technical, but in relation to INCO terms, so who, what's the responsibility of the seller and what's the responsibility of the importer? So being able to um, have those discussions with who you're buying or selling from enables an ease of trade um, because because it allows you to really, stip, um, you know, um, really uh, confirm uh, what what each person's responsibility is. Is that like who's liable if something gets um, delayed uh, or broken on the way through or if there's- That's part of it. Yeah. But it's also um, uh, who's responsible uh, for the arrangement uh, when it gets to a particular point uh, within the supply chain. Um, so it's clear um, and, and so that people can uh, pick up from when the other person's left off, you know, and have things keep moving. And I mean, did you pre-COVID travel a lot to some of these key markets with relationships, like you said, with sort of customs, um, brokers and other people? Has that been easier or harder connecting with, you know, your global sort of partners um, when travel's been restricted? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I've been traveling, you know, especially to say China since I was about 18 years old. Um, so I've always been able to, uh, you know, meet with, um, you know, uh, contacts that I've got in different countries, especially around Southeast Asia um, and, 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 you know, Asia, uh, particularly, but, um, over the last few years, it's definitely been a, a challenge, um, and, and difficult to, um, obviously not only just go over there, but to, to really talk about some, um, you know, some, uh, further strategies that we want to invest in together, but, um, you know, just giving, uh, just doing work with each other and being credible on, on how, you know, we're moving our clients' cargo is strengthening those relationships. So it's unfortunate that I can't go, you know, absolutely everywhere and, and meet, you know, every single agent um, on a regular basis. But having that uh, flow of, of traffic and, and working together and collaborating on, um, on, on regular business also definitely helps the, the relationship, you know. Yeah, and, and so a lot of people talk about trade in a very abstract, you know, the government, uh, free trade, tariffs. On the, the sort of practical, like you said, moving cargo between countries, are there things you think that the government of Australia or other countries could do that would help, you know, simpler, um, more transparent regulations, other sort of things that make it easier for, you know, international trade to sort of flow successfully? Yeah. Um, look, I, I think they continue to try doing that, but it's still going to be a specialised field. field. Um, you're still going to want people that have done it before or that are involved in it, you know, um, 
it's all good to to not understand it, but at some point, someone's going to have to understand it to to execute on on some of the requirements that uh, that we have uh, locally or, or internationally and abroad. Um, and ultimately, getting those right answers uh, will reduce costs associated uh, and, and delays. Um, so no matter what uh, each government does, because every single government is going to be making their decisions, um, you know, not only just in their best interest, but for the, 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 the trade relationships that they've got. Uh, but it's it's always going to be important to in, to ensure that you're up to date with what's required, um, you know, to, to make the process smooth. Has technology changed or evolved in, in tracking paperwork, you know, between countries, sort of lining everything up? Has that sort of helped in the, the time you've been in the industry? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, some companies are, some companies haven't adapted so well. Um, you know, uh, most have uh, adopted to you know a paperless environment. You know, we're, we're completely paperless. Um, so, uh, digitization has definitely had a major impact. But at the same time, what has done it is provide for visibility, um, which doesn't ultimately assist with being the proactive. Um, with uh, with some of the disruptions that's occurred, uh, but but definitely a little bit more visibility um, and, and you know being paperless, we're, we're obviously sending things electronically, um, and, and there are definitely uh, new ways that um, you know we're, we're speeding up and expediting uh, the way to process jobs. Definitely, yeah. And, and if we look back, um, what advice would you give someone who's maybe eighteen to twenty one? You were sort of surrounded by family members who sort of guided you into the industry. Maybe someone else is sort of like you, the eighteen to twenty. Um, they don't have a clear direction, but they're interested in business. What would you um, tell that sort of person who's trying to figure out? You know, do I study? Do I work? Do I start a business? What do I do? What would you say to someone like that? Uh, yeah, get comfortable taking the L. So you know, <laughs> taking the loss. Um, you know, get comfortable with it. Uh, if you can get comfortable with it, it uh, doesn't matter what step you know you're, you're moving in. You're going to increase that comfort zone. Um, so it, it's really just about uh, continuously moving forward. Um, you know, these losses are, are, are learning and lessons. You know, so it, it, there's nothing. Um, there's there's no there's no there's no there's no failing from it. You know. Was there a point, like you said, the, the business partner didn't work, the clothing business wasn't exactly as expected, where you were tempted to sort of give up or just, you know, go back to a job or doing something like that? Did that nah. ever sort of cross your mind? No, nah. no, nah. no chance. But it wasn't even, it wasn't anything to do with trying to succeed or anything. It's just more about um, I'm going to do what I want to do if I enjoy it. Um, and I didn't really have, you know, no indication of what is success or what is you know, this is working. It's just a, a movement, you know, movement forward and, and progressing. Yeah, and like you said, even if you get knocked down, getting back up, getting back into it, accepting there'll be losses no matter what and continuing that sort of forward motion. And so if we go back to United Carriers, what do you see the sort of five to 10-year vision? You, you've built up a culture, you've built up a team, obviously you're adapting in very interesting times to say the least. Where do you see um, the business or what direction heading in, in that sort of five to 10-year future? Um, yeah, we want to we want to work with people that we enjoy working with. Um, that's internally and externally. Um, you know, I'll, I'll follow what the business needs. Um, so I'm not going to you know try and, and plan too far ahead. I'll, I'll really look at what does the business need, uh, what do, does my clients need. Um, you know, I, I do see us you know uh, definitely growing from a global perspective. You know, we we do business with. You know other countries, so naturally, uh, we're going to go foc focus on wh where our services are required, um, and hopefully, you know, just just stay consistent with with our strategy. You know, with um, providing value added services and and um, you know advice and and yeah. 
So would that mean having you know an office in another country, more sort of boots on the ground that are working directly for you versus you know agents and other people, or what would that sort of global expansion look like? Um, yeah, it's a bit of both. Like you know, when you when you enter into one of these new markets, it's definitely about having your own uh, uh, brand reputation there, but but um, where there's strengths. So it's not about you know just going into a particular market and saying, all right, that's it, we're, we're routing all our business through us now, uh, through ourselves. It's it's actually looking at each supply chain and say, well, what actually works better? And until um, you know that that our branch in that particular country has more strengths um, and, and can provide um, you know that value added service that we're looking for, um, then for sure, yeah, we're going to continue to support that you know uh, that network. Yeah, so there's no point just putting your own person there for the sake of putting them there, right? But, oh, but sure, yeah. um, like you said, is there a way to add value to your clients? So what are some ways that you being you know more on the ground, I suppose, in other markets would sort of help add value? Is there a particular thing you'd like to do but you haven't yet been able to do it just with you know restrictions and everything yeah. uh, in the current Look, environment? It leads it leads back to the strategy. You know, we, we've got a particular strategy that um, that we we uh, continue to embody about you know not not just wanting something in, in return and, and, you know, we'll do business with you and, and we'll give you our solutions. It's really just about every opportunity um, sort of sitting with them and, and understanding how things are working currently um, and how can they can fix it within within the, the current infrastructure but also providing an alternative where we could actually get involved as well. Um, so, you know, uh, ultimately it's going to be the solutions that we, we provide to the customer. And are there any other areas you'd want to sort of expand into in terms of additional services, technology, other sort of things that being in the industry you think is is still sort of uh, being overlooked? Um, look, it, it really has got to do with global transport um, and that in itself is continuing to develop and innovate. So naturally, as um, you know, these other industries are continuing to uh, innovate. I'm sure that, you know, United Carriers as a business will continue to adapt um, whatever is, uh, you know, uh, desirable for, for, for our industry, you know, or what we see fit. Yeah, by being an early adopter, like you said, paperless technologies, other sort of systems that streamline. Not too early. You want to watch it. Wanna, <laughs> yeah. You know, not too early, but yeah, we're definitely. Yeah, just watching what's happening and, and what works well for, um, for, for the global supply chain. Excellent. Yeah, without taking any yeah, undue risks, but also making sure that, you know, if there's something, a better way of doing it that you, you yeah, jump on best it. Best practices, you know. Excellent. Any final words you'd like to, uh, or thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with? Uh, no, thank you very much for having me. Um, it's good having a chat with you, Derek. Excellent. Thanks so much for your time, Chris. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.